0: Coming to you from the American College of Emergency Physicians in Boston, Massachusetts, this is ReachMD, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. I'm joined by Dr. Angela Gardner, she's past president of ASEP, and Chief of Operations Quality and Safety, or as I like to say, OQS, at the University of Texas Southwestern, where she's also Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine there. Dr. Gardner, welcome to you.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you. So, we're at ASEP here today, a lot going on. What are you observing? What are your, your thoughts as a past president?
1: Well, the best job in the world is being the past president, because (laughs) you can attend the things you want to, they can never turn you down, and you can have a good time while you're here. And the best part about this meeting is the energy. And you can feel this around us, I guess that's why we have headphones on. You can feel people talking and energizing each other, it's a great thing.
0: That is a great thing. And I have to comment on it, because if for no other reason, the patch that they give you is fantastic. That says past president. I, I love the design work. I'm not entirely sure what it means with the grid, but having the one filled square seems symbolic of something.
1: Oh, I really like what you just said about that. So, this is the emblem of the American College of Emergency Physicians. It was designed by the founder and his contemporaries, and it was meant to represent the missing specialty in the House of Medicine. So there are 64 boxes that were the 64 specialties at the time, and the one that was missing was emergency medicine. Ah,
0: I love but that. But what
1: you just said was really great, that this is the filled square.
0: It does seem like a filled square. I'm actually quite relieved that my ignorance has led to <laughs> a good conversational topic <laughs> on the ASAP's uh, logo. But it is really, really, really really nice. So why don't we um, turn to your area specialty as chief of operations quality and safety at your institution how did that position come about and what is it that that you fulfill in your role there
1: Well, I want to correct you just on one tiny thing. So it's patient safety, and that's an important distinction because there are safety officers who look at fire extinguishers and the fire drills and the safety of the institution. But what we're looking at is patient safety and how we can keep our patients safe from the minute they arrive in the front door until the time they're discharged and actually now beyond the time of discharge.
0: Hmm. Is it a relatively new position? Because it seems to integrate a few different sectors, which... To date, I would have thought it would have been somewhat disparate between operations, looking at quality and patient safety obviously they they have a lot to do with one another but i 've heard of positions where people have just one of those sectors, and you seem to have an integrated position here what 's that like
1: It is an integrated position and that 's intentional. We hope to as a department take what we find in our quality work and and that 's traditional peer review so we 're looking at bad cases in addition to throughput measures, the quality measures that CMS gives us, and all the other data that we can get from our system and translate that into, one, how do I make this safe for my patients? And two, how do I make it the best possible care that I can give? And what we find in emergency medicine is that is not just about the quality of the doctor. It's about the entire system. And so operations deals with that. When a patient waits eight hours in a waiting room, it doesn't matter if their complaint is small or large. It will be large by the time they get to the back. So we have to minimize that. And so all the jobs tie together, and we're integrating them.
0: Well, you mentioned waiting times. That seems to be a pain point across emergency departments nationwide, even worldwide. Is that one of the fundamental challenges that you've been trying to address, or are there other more pressing matters that you've had to try to tackle first thing when you assume this position?
1: Well, waiting and boarding are the big ones. And I'm not impugning the institutions where I work because it's everywhere. People don't want to wait for care, even a small amount of time. And boarding patients in the ED is the other one I'm sure people have talked with you about before me. And that is keeping patients who are admitted to the hospital in the emergency department because there are no beds available.
0: Interesting. So what are some of the major challenges or barriers for you in trying to address operations in trying to address quality patient safety at university of texas southwestern
1: so the biggest challenge for us is simply size so at both hospitals so we have two separate hospitals at both hospitals there is a huge patient volume that has to be dealt with this is true across the country too and the things that we're talking about waiting and boarding also exist in every hospital in the country and they're tied together The more beds that are taken up in the emergency department by patients that belong upstairs, the fewer beds there are available to see new patients, and that affects your waiting times. So the challenge is integrating those. Kind of the bigger challenge is that hospitals, patients, other doctors, see the emergency department as a segmented place that is largely a pain, and they don't want to deal with that pain. So... The common way that people deal with this across the country is to say, go away, make this go away, make this happen, and that can't happen in a vacuum. We are part of a whole system, and everything from pre-hospital care to post-hospital care affects what happens in the emergency department.
0: Why don't we stick on that, that concept of the whole system, because prior to our interview, we talked a little bit offline about your work with integrated health systems, and specifically, An interesting link to it which is social media that's an area that that you've taken a lot of interest in people hear social media and integrated health systems or the whole system and they don't necessarily put those two concepts together how do they link up in your mind
1: well so I see a future And so most people, when they talk about social media, they think young people. These are your 20, early 30-somethings that are on Twitter or, you know, Facebook is for old people now. But, you know, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're doing whatever they do. And they think young people. What they don't realize is that there are large movements that were propelled forward by Twitter, for lack of a better word. And people are using this now. People are sitting in waiting rooms across the city here in Boston and saying, oh, the waiting time here is only 15 minutes. Our patients are very sophisticated. They know what they're doing. We, as health professionals, need to be taking advantage of that. We need to be, one, putting educational material out there. Two, we need to be telling people how long the wait time is and what they can expect. And three, we need to be communicating via that method. Now, when I say things like that, the older members of my profession, not just in emergency medicine, actually turn off their hearing aids and don't hear anything else because they don't want to leave the one-on-one selfness of medicine. And I agree with that. There is something to having one-on-one encounter. But we would be foolish as a profession to not do what Taco Bell does. We would be foolish to ignore the technology that's at
0: our fingertips. And describe just for our listeners, viewers, what is it that groups like Taco Bell are doing so
1: and and again I'm not advocating for one company over another. Lots of companies do this. You actually can watch what's happening with your customer experience from the minute they start until they leave. We need to be watching what happens with our patients from the minute they come in the door until after they go home.
0: So social media platforms can be in and of themselves not just not just data analytics gatherers, but they can be change agents or windows and portals into how patients are reflecting on their experience.
1: That's exactly right. And then, so people have cell phones, and more and more and more people have smartphones. There's all kinds of technology we need to be using to make those smartphones user-friendly. A map of the hospital is just the beginning of what a patient can track. A patient portal into their healthcare is just the beginning. What if the patient could text the doctor and say, help, uh, my pain is 10 over 10? And the doctor could then relay an order to someone who gets that order carried forward.
0: Interesting. So let me ask you then, were there any particular experiences for you that served as sort of um, tipping points that made you an early adopter in the social media campaign for medicine?
1: Oh, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's just that ER docs tend to be early adopters, and we tend to think of ways that we could put those things to use. So I've never been in private practice. I hope never to be in, say, a um, family practice setting where I'm seeing someone in a clinic, but I have a lot of respect for the people who do that. It might be possible to actually put these tools to use for us with patients in that capacity so that they could text an office, for instance, and say, when are your available appointments? Get on the calendar, say, I'd like to talk about my blood glucose, have them pull up the blood glucoses and look at it with you. More than that, what if they got on a program like Skype and actually saw their patient and said, what's wrong with your glucose? Can we help you do this today? And the patient didn't have to go into the office at all.
0: Do you think anybody in the primary care sector would hear that and think, if emergency medicine is an early adopter of this platform, and if, and if that platform can in some ways help supplement the medical home care model that people are looking for, would primary care people see that as a threat to their primary care home model that they're trying to adopt nationwide? And how do you respond to that as an emergency physician who probably has to, to deal with that question a lot?
1: So emergency medicine is the medical home for the medically homeless. We are the people who take care of those people who don't have the insurance or the wherewithal to have a medical home. And I have a lot of respect for people who want to be members of the medical home model, but it only applies to a certain portion of the population, those who have means to have that. Emergency medicine is non-discriminatory. We take all comers all the time. And that's the joy of our profession. Will this be threatening to them? Yes. And Part of what has to be done is that on a global level, and by that I mean in terms of the entire country and all of our profession, we have to embrace that a change is coming and actually figure out where our place is and how to how to have a life and a career in that place. Part of the challenge that you're talking about is who's going to pay for you to Skype your patient, and I'm just putting that on the table because it is probably the first thing that comes to someone's head, maybe right after the question of, what if I get sued for something I say on Skype or on social media? So we have to actually put our heads together and come up with ways to make healthcare better for our patients, not to preserve what's in the status quo.
0: Fascinating. Well, if you're just joining us, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz, and I'm joined by Dr. Angela Gardner. She's past president of ASAP, and we are covering all sorts of topics I have to say from social media to quality to operations and of course to patient safety. So Dr. Gardner why don't we shift gears a little bit because I know another area in which you're very proactive is tort reform. You happen to be in perhaps one of the best states to speak about that. What is your experience your perspective on tort reform in America now?
1: So I have the great privilege of living in a state that reformed its tort laws in the early 2000s, and I have the very great privilege to have been at the center of that fight. I won't take credit for it. There are a lot of people who were involved in changing the laws, but I definitely benefit from it. And it has created an environment where, in my particular profession, people are no longer being sued every day. Twelve years ago... I was speaking at a meeting with the head of the insurance commission and the head of the trial bar in Texas, and we were talking about the need for tort reform in Texas. There were at least 200 doctors in the audience, largely leaders in our profession, and I asked the question, how many of you have ever been sued in a a professional liability suit? Every doctor hand went up, every hand. And I said, how many of you have more than one pending? And only about a third of the hands went down. So in Texas in the early 2000s, if you saw an ER doc and they had been in practice longer than a year, they likely had a lawsuit pending. Hmm. That was a very sad state of affairs that litigation is damaging to physicians. Physicians take it personally. It's not just business. They take years to resolve and the consequences are enormous. So I'm not saying that there should not be litigation for wrongdoing, but that the system we had was not right. And since then, times have changed.
0: Yeah, I'd like to touch upon that specifically, because in your position 12 years later on the ground floor in Texas, where tort reform has taken place, there must have been a a radical sea change in the way that practice is, is interpreted or even seen by physicians and other healthcare practitioners. Specifically, we think about litigation, but we also think about defensive practice and how endemic that is across the country, the threat of litigation and how that changes a person's scope of practice. What have you seen in the last 12 years as far as that sea change in practicing medicine?
1: I've seen a whole generation of doctors graduate from medical school and residency who have no idea what it's like to practice under that threat. And that is a great thing. Has it changed what they order and how they order tests? I don't have data to support that, so I will defer to something that's more factual. What I do know is that I was at a conference recently and someone made the comment publicly that you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to be sued for malpractice in Texas. I haven't decided yet if that was a positive or a negative comment, but it was a very interesting one.
0: (laughs) So, before we wrap up, any more thoughts that you wanna offer on any of the subjects we, we talked about, from social media to tort reform, to work in patient safety and data analytics?
1: So I, I do have one continued item on the subject of tort reform, and that is that the tort reforms in Texas are being challenged, actually, by people who live in border states. And there is a suit pending, which is going to an appellate court level in the state of New Mexico, where a patient living in New Mexico actually is trying to get a malpractice suit moved from Texas, where the doctor practices, to New Mexico. So this seems like a minor thing, which very much is not, and will change the nature of liability law if it is no longer a state-run process. So that's on the horizon. Watch out for what's happening there.
0: Will you take an active role in trying to fight that process?
1: So I actually don't have to. There are a number of organizations that have been involved. Amicus briefs have been filed, and we'll see where the process goes. I think it is a very interesting area to watch, though. And in terms of social media, I have to say that my name is at Headliner on Twitter. Please come and check out what we're doing. I also want to caution you that that name was given to me <laughs> at the beginning of Twitter as an entity, and you must be very careful about the handles you choose.
0: <laughs> One must be careful. I think there's no better parting comment than that. I was actually going to ask you about ASEP Headliner. It seems like a fantastic handle to, to have been given.
1: Oh, um, well, so, thank you. I was flattered. Yeah, but...
0: kudos to you. <laughs> May you continue to headline for us years down the road with ASAP. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Dr. Matt Reynolds, This is ReachMD. I've been talking with Dr. Angela Gardner, past president of ASAP, or ASEP Headliner, I should say. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Dr. Gardner, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> for more access to this and other podcasts and videos ReachMD, Come on down to reachmd.com, and we'll see you there. Thanks for joining us.